0: Thanks for joining the Hague Mennonite Church Podcast. We are a small and friendly congregation in Hague, Saskatchewan. Here you will find our weekly messages and we hope you will be encouraged and blessed. Let's get it started. All right, well good morning again everyone. This morning we are starting Acts chapter 2, which Uh, probably is considered the high note of this book. It's kind of interesting, you know, you go through Matthew, and everything kind of builds and builds and builds, and then Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem, and he keeps telling his disciples, oh, they're going to kill me, they're going to kill me, just warning you, they're going to kill me. And then finally, at the end of the gospel, right, hits the high note, crucifixion and resurrection, and it's over. And in this case... Acts is structured a little bit differently. I mean, you could see chapter 2 as the high note. This is when, in some senses, the main character arrives, right? The Holy Spirit is on the scene, and everything that happens after this is going to be a consequence of everything we discuss this morning. Just to catch you up, we kicked off the book of Acts by looking at Jesus' ascension and we looked at that one last bad question, which the disciples just had to sneak in there to ask Jesus before he ascended. And last week in particular, we looked at that strange event, which happened between Jesus' departure and, between, and this morning, the Holy Spirit's arrival, when the disciples went and they found a replacement for Judas. Judas. But now, on this, in this chapter, the promise is kept. That promise which Jesus promised from the Father, Pentecost has come. Acts 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So here's a little bit of Bible, Bible trivia time. What in the world is Pentecost? Pentecost. Does anybody have any idea? Other than the day the Holy Spirit came. Like, what is Pentecost? Why, why are they gathered? Feast of, weeks. Feast of weeks. Was that you, Mike? I can't see anybody's mouths. Okay. Yeah, you get the bonus points today. <laughs> so just to unpack it a bit, the word Pentecost is a Greek word that means 50th. And that's because this particular holiday takes place 50 days after the Passover. But this holiday is actually mentioned multiple times in the Old Testament, multiple times in the Torah, by its Hebrew name. It's called, most often, I think, the Feast of Weeks, and it's also sometimes called the Day of the First Fruits. Uh, Today, the holiday is simply called Shavuot, uh, which means weeks in Hebrew. So if you're, you're in Israel at this time of year, you would celebrate Shavuot. So Pentecost, the day of the first fruits, the Feast of Weeks, I'm just going to call it Shavuot for simplicity's sake, it's a harvest celebration. The Torah establishes the holiday as a celebration of the very first of the wheat harvest. This year, Shavuot Shavuot falls on May 16th, and that's because the growing season in Israel is over the winter. That's when they receive their rain. Summer is much too dry to grow anything. So you have your harvest festival in the spring. It's a a flip from the way we think about harvest festivals and all those things. But there's an added uh, facet to Shavuot that can be really easy to miss if you're not careful. I'm going to read from Exodus 19. Feel free to just listen to this, see if you pick up on the details. Exodus 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt... On that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai. And they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God. The Lord called out to him from the mountain, saying, "'Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, "'You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians "'and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. "'Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, "'you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, "'for all the earth is mine, "'and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation.'" These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So this passage in Exodus 19 describes when Israel first arrives at Mount Sinai after fleeing from Egypt. As soon as they get there, Moses goes up the mountain and he begins to receive instructions from God. in, in the Jewish sense, you would say, Moses now begins to receive the Torah. God is giving his Torah to Moses. And they say in this passage that all of this had happened by, by the third new moon. And so by the reckoning of the Jewish, Jewish sages, and I didn't even try to unpack it for myself because lunar calendars don't mean, like, they're totally confusing to me. But by the reckoning of the Jewish sages, that means that Israel arrived at Sinai 50 days after they fled Egypt. Why does that matter? Well, of course, Israel fleeing Egypt was the original Passover. And so if the original Passover was fleeing Egypt and 50 days later they arrive at Sinai, then the arrival at Sinai in the beginning of the Torah, of God giving Moses the instruction, is the original Pentecost. So Israel started to receive the Torah at Shavuot, at Pentecost. And in Jewish tradition then, Shavuot has become much more than a harvest celebration. It's more than we think about Thanksgiving. Shavuot has also become a celebration of Israel receiving the Torah, which in the Jewish faith is the most pivotal event in their whole faith story, the the gift of the Torah. So anyway, let's get back to Acts. I haven't even changed slides yet. Okay, that always happens, doesn't it? So when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. The disciples are all together, but we don't know where. And some people assume that they're in the same upper room as last time, but I'm going to make the case with everything that's about to happen, I think that they're somewhere a lot more public. So we're going to come back to this, because it's actually fairly important to the way everything unfolds. Verse 2. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. So wherever they were for the Pentecost, the disciples are totally taken off guard by this amazing phenomenon. The place where they're sitting is filled with something. The details here are really interesting because do you notice that Luke doesn't say that the room was filled with a mighty rushing rushing wind? That's not exactly what he says, right? That's how I always imagine it. I always assume that the windows were blown open or whatever. But he says that the room was filled with a sound. And he says that that sound sounded something like a really powerful rushing wind. So all the disciples are gathered there. We assume it's the 120 that they're all still waiting together because we're never told otherwise. So we, we assume it's those 120 and the whole room is filled with this roar of a rushing wind. In the Gospel of John chapter 3, Jesus is visited by a Pharisee named Nicodemus and Nicodemus asks Jesus a number of questions. Nicodemus is trying sincerely to understand Jesus' teachings because Nicodemus recognizes Jesus' signs. He knows they're from God, so he wants to understand what Jesus is teaching. He's doing what a lot of the Pharisees refuse to do. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, to enter the kingdom of God, you need to be born again. And so Nicodemus asks Jesus, how can somebody be born again? And this is Jesus' response. This is from John 3, looking at verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again, because the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's really cool. Nicodemus wants to know how to be born again, how to be a part of the kingdom of God. And Jesus tells him that we are born again when we are born of water and we are born of spirit. We are baptized and we receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that that spirit is like a wind. He compares the spirit to wind. It blows where it wishes. There's no predicting it. There's no controlling it. You hear its sound. You don't know where it comes from or where it's going. And it just blows my mind that this early in the ministry, in a conversation with a Pharisee, Jesus describes how the Spirit is the one that brings new life and it comes on like a wind. And now here we are. We're looking at Pentecost. This is sometime later in the story. And all this same language is coming up again. But, of course, there's more than just this roaring sound which fills the space. Verse 3. And divided tongues, as of fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. What in the world is a tongue of fire? It's a fair question. You know, if you Google image search Pentecost, you'll see tons and tons of pictures, ancient and recent, of just these little flames. And I think that's the way everyone best understands it. But notice again, right? Luke says that these tongues were as of fire. It's like saying like fire. And so they aren't fire per se, but they're like fire. That's the best point of comparison. And I think we're supposed to imagine like a single flame. One single tongue of fire. And so that kind of makes sense to us. So something that looks like a single flame rests on each one of the disciples. All of the 120 as I, as I understand it. Can you think of any other instances in the Bible where God's presence appears to be like fire. Anything off the top of your head? Moses and the burning bush, right? Any others? The pillar of fire. fire. Those are the two I have written down, so we'll stop there. (laughs) Thank you. Exodus 3, right? The famous burning bush. The flames represented God's miraculous presence. But remember that in that case, even though the fire filled the bush, the bush wasn't being consumed. So even in Exodus 3, God's presence is like fire, but it's different from fire. Fire would burn up the bush. And and just like Brandon mentioned, there's also the pillar of fire that comes up later in the Torah. It guided Israel by night. Again, it's like fire. Because fire does not typically form pillars in the sky. Like Fair to say. It was the presence of God. Represented in something that looks to us like fire. And then we can take another jump ahead. Look, at, Do you remember John the Baptist's words in Matthew? Matthew 3.11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This fire thing, it just keeps coming up. And here we have it in Pentecost and now it's happening now exactly what John the Baptist predicted is happening they're being baptized with Holy Spirit and fire a roar fills the room the presence of God like flames rests on each of the disciples and you start to think Can this situation get any wilder and it does verse 4 and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance So Luke says it right out. They're filled. They are all baptized in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is dwelling in them. And in response to this, the disciples begin to prophesy. They are speaking words from God. And as Luke says, it is the Spirit which is giving them all these words. Prophecy is speaking a message from God. And it's the Spirit which is just filling them with these languages. And so we're actually going to go back to the Torah again because I just can't resist. And, and Luke just has Torah connections all over this chapter. There's a really amazing part of Numbers where God decides that Moses is a bit overworked and Moses needs some middle management, right? So Moses gathers together 70 elders from Israel. And the scripture says that God takes some of the spirit off of Moses and puts it onto these 70 elders. So that they can be equipped for the work of helping to lead the nation. And what happens to these 70 elders when God takes spirit off of Moses and puts it on the 70? They all start to prophesy. They all start to speak these messages from God. And the story goes on to tell us that two of these elders don't stop prophesying. To the point where Joshua starts to get really, really concerned about it. And Joshua actually tells Moses to go and get them to stop prophesying. And this is what, how Moses responds from Numbers 11. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets. That the Lord would put his spirit on them. You catch that? Moses is longing for the day when the Lord's Spirit will be on all of his people. Moses is longing for Pentecost. Moses is actually longing for the birth of the church. I put together this chart. I think maybe it might help me explain it a little further. So you have Passover and Pentecost. You have Pesach and Shavuot. Um, And the main theme, I would say, of Passover is salvation. And the main theme of Shavuot is revelation. Because even in the Jewish imagination, the the giving of the Torah has sort of become the main theme. So this is how it kind of comes together. In the original Passover, Israel in the Torah is saved from slavery. Their salvation is from slavery in Egypt. And then 50 days later on Shavuot, they're given the Torah where God reveals himself to the nation of Israel and calls them as a people. And then again, with Jesus at the Passover, he's crucified and resurrected. And the Passover holiday becomes uh, salvation from sin and death. It gets amped up in Jesus, right? Then in Shavuot, 50 days later, the, the disciples are gathered and the Holy Spirit comes. And again, it gets ramped up because just like Moses is asking for, it's the Holy Spirit is now on all of God's people. It's a greater revelation of God. Now all of us have God dwelling in us. So do you sort of see how this works? Like the Old Testament holidays, actually, they're precursors to what happens in the New Testament. And everything that happens with Jesus and the cross is tied to the Passover. Everything that's happening today is tied to Pentecost. It's tied to Shavuot. God is patterning history, salvation history, on the holy days, on on the high holidays in the Torah. God keeps his promise. Moses' longing is fulfilled. The 120 disciples, they're filled with the Spirit, and it's not just on them. As in Moses' case, in the Torah, it says that the Spirit was on Moses. But Luke actually says that the Spirit is inside of them. They all prophesy, and then things get even better because they're not just all saying words from God in their mother tongue, Aramaic. They are speaking in whatever tongue, whatever language the Spirit wants them to speak in. Verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, it's not too surprising, but devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. So this is great. This is how it's working. It's holiday time again in Jerusalem. It's Shavuot. And you know what that means, right? There are Jews in this city from all over the world. Shavuot required a special grain sacrifice And the only way to offer up this grain sacrifice was actually to be in Jerusalem. So many Jews from all over the world would go through great effort and a lot of danger to keep this holiday and to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and experience Shavuot to the full. So just like we would always talk about uh, with Passover, the population of Jerusalem balloons again. So I actually think that the disciples must be gathered in the temple courtyard. You remember this picture of this mo- really cool model in Jerusalem? There is this special courtyard all around the temple with these pillars. And on that side there, there was even a court with an, with an upper room. We're told that Jesus spent a great deal of time preaching here in that last week. And Luke actually tells us that the apostles, that the disciples would come here regularly in order to teach and to preach. They were still coming to the Temple Plaza. It's, a great, it's the best place to be during the holiday. And I think this explains why the disciples are in earshot of essentially every nation under the sun. Because this whole plaza during Shavuot would be full of people from all over the world. And so the disciples prophesying in all of these languages that they don't even know, they begin to draw a crowd. They begin to get people's attention. And the crowd is baffled because these people from all over the world, they start to hear in this cacophony people praising God in their own language from back home. Verse 7. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? It's one thing to hear your mother tongue when you're a long way from home. It's another thing to hear Gal- to hear it in Galilean accents. We've, we've talked about this a little bit before. Because the thought going through these people's heads is, how in the world are these Galilean hillbillies speaking in perfect Parthian? That's what they're thinking. I remember I went to a grocery store, when, it was a superstore when I was in Winnipeg, Uh, with a friend of mine who was a missionary kid, he grew up in China. And we were in the international aisle, and he was looking for something in particular, and he came up behind this Chinese lady, and he started speaking to her in in fluent Cantonese. And her her back was to him, right? And so she starts to answer the question when when he's speaking to her, and turns around, and her jaw just hits the floor. Because here's this Mennonite white guy who's speaking in unaccented Cantonese. And she can't believe it. And and that's kind of what's going on here, except it's probably accented because they can tell they're Galileans. How in the world are Galileans speaking Parthian? How in the world are they speaking Latin? Galileans were not known for being well-educated people. And these people, like these languages, it is an amazing swath of languages. I'm going to go through this super fast, so don't worry about this being slow. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in their own tongues the mighty works of God. I actually found a pretty handy map to kind of show this a little bit of what it looks like, and it's a big mess because it's supposed to be. It's an impressive list. Uh, you have the Eastern language from Parthia and Mesopotamia. You have a whole bunch of languages here from what they called Asia. It's uh, modern-day Turkey. And you have a little bit there from the West. We're going to go through it a little bit. So Parthia, Media, and Elam and, and Mesopotamia, they're all parts of the Far East. And Parthia, Media, and Elam would be here in what is modern-day Iran. Uh, Mesopotamia is modern-day Iraq, uh, more or less. They're all way outside of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire ends here. And so here's something I've never thought about, but as I was researching this, it just it totally blew my Bible nerd socks off. Right? These are the places, especially in Iran, in the pr- former Persian Empire. Where the 12 tribes were scat- where, where the ten tribes were scattered. We usually we call them the lost tribes. In those tribes, they were exiled from Israel in a series of conquests and disasters that fell upon the Hebrew people. But the historians write, at this time, even in Iran, they are still forming distinct communities. And scholars estimate that there were millions of Jews living in the uh, Parthian Empire, at the time so what this means is that the lost tribes at least here in the first century are not so lost there are still Torah observant Hebrews in the east who are making their trips to the mother country for the high holidays and I had just never realized that before I always thought that they were lost and forgotten so that's kind of exciting Here's a question from the list, What after those places. Why does Luke mention Judea? It's weird. It's a little obvious. Jerusalem is in Judea. It's like saying that there were people from Saskatchewan in Saskatoon. It's so obvious it's not even worth saying. But I think what's going on here is Luke is probably using the term to refer to a broader definition of the Judean kingdom. So if you think back to the time of King David or King Solomon, The kingdom of Judah was much, much bigger, or the kingdom of Israel was much bigger and stretched from here all the way up to to, uh, Euphrates River. And so maybe it's the broad sense of Judea that Luke has in mind, which would include places like Syria. And then there's Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia. All of these places were from what they called Asia Minor, what we call today Turkey. Every city across Asia, as they called it, had a major Jewish population at this time. Paul was actually from one of these cities, uh, I think in Sicilia here, called Tarsus. So he was actually from what we call Turkey. He was just part of the Jewish community in that city. And one note I found is just for geography people, I guess, but Jewish inscriptions from this time are found as far north as Crimea. So all the way up here, north of the sea, on the Crimean Peninsula, they found first century Jewish inscriptions, which, which basically we would consider Ukraine. And that's a little bit crazy to me, that, that the Jews were so spread over the world, but it gives you the context. And then we get Egypt and Libya and Cyrene, At the time, there were supposedly millions of Jews living in Egypt alone. There was always a strong Jewish community there. Then, of course, we get Rome. Rome sticks out like a sore thumb because it's the only place in mainland Europe that's mentioned of all these places. But we get a couple more details about Rome than these other places. The Roman pilgrims are made up of both Jews and proselytes. Jews weren't known for proselytizing a whole lot, proselytizing Gentiles. Proselytizing means to convert people. Jews weren't known to be very evangelical, so to speak, but apparently historians at the time mentioned that the Jews in Rome were very aggressively trying to convert Romans to Judaism, so much so that Roman historians write about just how annoying all these Jewish preachers are, always trying to convert him to Judaism. So a Roman could commit to keeping the Torah, and if they would do this, they would be fully welcomed into the Jewish community. There were apparently three rituals that a Roman had to undergo, and they would be considered full-fledged Jewish. I made a list. Circumcision for the dudes. Self-baptism for purification. And then sacrifice at the temple. And it's kind of funny, I read that apparently, because of the first requirement, there were way more female Romans who converted to Judaism than there were men. And so now you know. (laughs) If that ever comes up helpfully in your life again, I will be shocked. You can text me. And finally, there's just two more places on the list. There's the Cretans and the Arabians. And I actually don't even need to introduce the Cretans again because we met them fairly recently when we were discussing uh, Paul's letter or Paul's instructions for Crete. And by Arabians, Luke is probably talking about the Nabataean kingdom, but he could be talking about anyone from all over the Arabian peninsula. All of these are Jewish, faithful Jewish people from all over the world. So why do I go through all those details? Why do I go through all that? I, I just want you to understand how far flung this crowd is. Because it puts it into perspective what it means for each of them, each of them, to be hearing their language in a Galilean accent. They cannot pick their jaws off of the stone floor. It's an awesome scene. And it gets even better because if we kind of tug this thread in Pentecost, we're gonna see something else in the Torah start to wiggle. So where in the Torah do we see a story revolving around a whole bunch of diverse languages? The Tower of Babel. Babel. You may know the story, right? Here's the chat abbreviation. All humanity wants to get together to be super evil. And so God curses humanity with a wide range of languages so that we can't coordinate enough with each other to be super evil. But now at Pentecost, that curse is undone. In the community of the disciples of Jesus, in the kingdom of heaven, we are actually in the spirit brought back together again. We are unified. And on this day, on this Pente- Pentecost, we are unified even in language when they're preaching there on the temple bound. So the confusion of Babel is replaced but with a spirit which enables all people anywhere to hear the praises of God. And so it's no wonder that after this, the disciples go all over the world. Because this kingdom, this salvation, they've been equipped for it. It is for everyone. And the Spirit is making that perfectly clear. But not everyone responds to this Spirit in the same way. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They're filled with new wine. So there are generally, as Luke says it, two responses to this miracle. Those who ask, what does this mean? They realize that there's some sort of divine act going on here. This is not normal. They realize God must be involved. It has meaning. But others simply conclude, ah, they're just drunk. Don't worry about that. A few weeks ago, I was at the grocery store. I wasn't drunk. That's not a really good segue. I was at the grocery store. And, uh, and I, I, just, I had bought a boatload of groceries and I was waiting to go through the till. And I chose the shortest line I could and in front of me, uh, I could tell after a little while that the transaction for the people in front of me just was not going through. And by the way they were speaking and by their appearance, I could tell that the, these guys were probably recent immigrants to Canada. And they kept trying, and they kept trying, and they kept trying. And uh, of course it occurred to me, well, I should go pay for it. But then I thought, oh, maybe it's just a card error. I used to work in a store. Card errors happen all the time. So I didn't do anything. And they kept trying, and they kept trying, and they kept trying. And eventually they took their groceries off to the side. And I saw that it was just a few basic items. Their cart wasn't even half full. And before I did anything, they left the store. And I, was, I felt terrible because I realized that the whole while that I was watching this happen, it's such a simple scenario, I was in my heart coming up with all sorts of bad excuses. It's a card error. They probably have a, gro- a, a cart full of groceries. Like, why would I need to pay for that? You know, on and on and on, trying to avoid it. And I had, I had a long time to do something about it. So what stopped me? I can tell you that actually I had absolutely no doubt what God was doing in that situation. I could even say I had the still small voice telling me, go pay for it. It quit thinking about it and do it. And even now, I could very easily give you more bad excuses and try to explain to you that it's not really a big deal, but I don't know that. I don't know what God would have done with one small act of faith. I don't know the conversation I may have had afterwards. I don't know what those items meant to those men. I don't know that. And not doing what God requires of me is sin. How do I know what God requires? Two ways. I have his word. And I have the Holy Spirit which dwells in me because of Pentecost. Prompting me to do God's will in my day-to-day life. So, what stopped me from obeying in that moment? It was simply that I did not want to give up control. I did not want to listen to the Spirit. The truth of the matter is that the sin in us has a way of protecting us from God. Sin knows that sometimes to us, God feels dangerous. God will call us into places and into people's lives which don't feel safe to us. And when you start to unpack that, you realize that's actually our purpose here, isn't it? Aren't we a people with a mission? Aren't we supposed to go to the places that aren't safe? But the enemy can so easily lure us into sin in this area. The enemy can so easily convince us not to do what God has asked us to do, Simply by convincing us that we need to be safe. And here's the trick. Safety to us is when we feel like we are in control. And the truth is that Satan wants us to be in control. The enemy does not need to take the reins. He only needs to convince us to keep the reins. Because the enemy knows that on our own, we perish. And that is how part of the crowd on the greatest Pentecost could hear God's praises in their own language. Each heard it in their own language. Nobody missed it. And they heard it in Galilean accents. And not all of them could ask, what is God doing here? That is how some of them could mock a clear and an obvious miracle and just decide, oh, they're drunk and try to explain it away. Because that's ridiculous. I don't need a show of hands, but if, if somewhere in your past you grew up in the party scene here in, in town, in how many of those parties did someone start declaring God's glory in perfect Latin? Did that ever happen? And if that happened to you in one of these parties, I would like to know how many beers in you needed to go before that started happening. It is absolutely ridiculous. It doesn't make sense. They're not speaking Latin because they're drunk. Luke says that everyone was amazed. They were all seeing the same thing, and it was beyond explanation to each one of them. The difference is the mockers choose a bad excuse in order to keep themselves safe, because they're drunk does not explain what's going on, but it does keep them safe from having to encounter a wild God, a Holy Spirit which blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. It, keep, it saves them from having to encounter a God which they cannot control. So when that part of the crowd says they are filled with new wine, what they are really saying is, not me, Jesus. And so then I confess, when I say to myself, they'll be fine, it's just a card error. What I was saying is, not me, Jesus. And I know this for myself, I know this for all of us. Church, it's time for us to get out of the Holy Spirit's way. It's time for us to give up our sense of safety, which truly rests totally in our sense of control. It's time to stop worrying about being safe and secure and financed and organized and totally irrelevant. It's time for us to simply decide in all areas at all times to say, yes, Lord, choose me, send me, I'll do it to be willing to say yes, to get out of the way. It's time for all of us to admit our bad excuses are bad excuses and it's time for us to be willing to go where he sends us. And the beautiful thing about this is the first step is is so very simple. We need to give up control. We need to be open, right? We need to strip off the self-consciousness and the fear which keeps us from both hearing and obeying the Holy Spirit in our day-to-day lives. We've got to get over ourselves, so to speak. We need to worship freely. We need to witness to people freely. We need to, you know, tell people that we have good news. We need to obey God freely, follow Him freely, respond to Him freely, instead of remaining slaves to ourselves. When you have a church without the Holy Spirit, what you have is a community club. In this community club, it will occasionally talk about the 2,000-year-old teachings of some Jewish guy, but it cannot obey them and it cannot even understand them without the Spirit. And I think that, in a nutshell, is why the church today is in decline and in rebellion all across our nation, all across the world. But the church, which gives the reins to the Holy Spirit, is life from death. It is good news to the poor and to the downtrodden, and it is the presence and the body of Jesus in this world. We've all come to him, we've all accepted his salvation, but now as disciples of Jesus, we decide who is in control. Who runs the day-to-day life in our day-to-day lives? Who runs the day-to-day life of this church? Are we going to be willing in that snap to say, yes, Lord, I'm going to do it? And I pray that next time I just say yes. Because it, it seemed like a small thing. It's still just killing me. And we don't even need to go there. We don't have to. It could have been a great story. I could be sharing the testimony here this morning. We decide who gets control and when we decide for the Holy Spirit, which is truly the only decision, we are free of having to worry about it. We're free of having to have that control. And God's purposes will always be done. And as we're going to see next time, you may think you don't have it in you. You, don't, you may believe that you don't have it in you to be that kind of a witness or to be that kind of person to step in those situations. But it doesn't matter because what you have in you is the Holy Spirit. None of us in our own power have it in us, but the Spirit can accomplish anything. And next time, Peter's going to start preaching, and you're going to wonder if this is a totally different Peter, like if they got the names mixed up, right? Because it's the Holy Spirit in us which is victorious. We simply need to get out of the way. Let's pray. Actually, if you're open to it, let's do something a little bit old school. If you'd like to stand to pray, let's stand. Heavenly Father, you are great and your throne is mighty. And you are a king to be served. And you are a king who rules over us with love and with righteousness. And in all things you want our good. And so God, we come before your throne and we repent of our failures. We repent of those areas in our lives where we've allowed self-doubt and where we've allowed bad excuses to get in the way of your good. God, with humble hearts, we pray that when your Holy Spirit dwelling in us prompts us that it would always be a joyful yes, and that we would start on this Pentecost journey together where we are a community who says, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would have the reins of this congregation, that we would move according to your will. You are unpredictable. You do what you please, and we pray that your pleasure would be done in us. Holy One, teach us to be open to you. Teach us to listen carefully for your voice and to drown out those spirits of doubt which cause us to stumble. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would then overwhelm us. That in all things, at all times, we would see your purposes, that we would see your glory, and that we would do your work as your people. God, you are great and you are worthy of our praise. You've not left us alone. You've not left us orphans. We're we're not helpless and alone because we do not have Jesus here with us. We are filled with your spirit. We have everything we need. We are ready for the journey. And for that, we give you honor and we give you praise and we give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening to the Hague Mennonite Church Podcast. For more information about us, you can go to our website haigmenonitechurch.ca. Until the next time.